you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. There's some debate about when Felsha and my first date actually occurred. Um, we, uh, we're in seminary. Uh, we both came planning on being single. We planned on uh, like finishing seminary as fast as we could. And we don't need a spouse because this is kind of the, the story of seminary, that people come there to find a spouse because it's just this great place. And uh, so we're, we're going to be single. Uh, and then I was like, oh, but I'm intrigued by her. She seems like a wonderful person. Let me ask her out. And I worked up the nerve. I said, you want to go into town and go to coffee times? So we can get some coffee. Because if you're in Wilmore, that's like going to Jeff Ruby's to get out of Wilmore and go to <laughs> coffee times. Uh, so I work up the nerve and I ask her, but then I chicken out at the very last second. I'm like, and we can study for our, our, our New Testament midterm. Oh, it's the right response. Uh, she, apparently she was ready to go on this first date, but we go and we study and we come back. And I'm like, well, let's go to the library and keep studying. Her friends let me know that that was a failure of a first date. Uh, but the second one was great. Our second first date that we redid was incredible. We went to Smashing Tomato and the only hiccup there was some real cute little kid came up and asked if I was Santa Claus. And I was horrified because I'm like, we're five years apart, but I clearly look 20 years older than her, right? Uh, I've got this gray beard already starting. This is before kids, so it wasn't super gray, but apparently I handled that okay. And we go to uh, um, Orange Leaf afterwards. This was the height of Orange Leaf. There was one on every corner in Lexington, and we got our, our little yogurt, and I got two blackberries. Uh, I wanted two blackberries exactly, and she, about halfway through, she was like, oh, let me try that blackberry, and took one of my two blackberries, and it didn't infuriate me. She was incredible. She, she's just talking about her life, and it is, it, it, she's just carrying the conversation. And I now know that she's introverted, too, so it's shocking that we had a good conversation. She's telling me about uh, her life, and I'm asking questions about her friends, and she tells me about her best friend, Carol. All the stuff about what it's like to grow up with Carol and kind of Carol's path in life, and it, this is all wonderful. And we have a great time, and then we hop in the car to drive back to Wilmore, and she's, she's still talking. For an introvert, she's still talking. She clearly carried the whole thing. And on the ride back to Wilmore, she talks about her best friend, Jade. That's the right look, Jennifer. Best friend, Carol, during Orange Leaf, and then best friend, Jade. But I decided this is our first date. I shouldn't question this. I'm just going to let it go. And then later on, on another date, she talks about her best friend, Jacob. And, and then I realized she's talking about one of our friends at seminary, Liz, as her best friend, Liz. And now she has a new friend, this best friend, Sarah. And I want to be like, Felsha, this is not how words work. You only get one best friend, right? <laughs> you could say, these are some of my best friends, but without the modifier, best only give, it's, it's a superlative, right? Can only be the one. And I finally worked up the nerve to push her, and she's like, well, you're just wrong. They can, they're all my best friends. This has been a little smug thing of mine for years and years until I, I figured, I realized, I have done the same thing to y'all. Often in sermons, I talk about my favorite book. Does anybody remember what my favorite book is? Oh, you're disappointed. Ender's Game, if you listen to one sermon, one sermon Ender's Game is my favorite book, this, this story, right? 
But if you listen to another sermon, The Story of God, The Story of Us by Sean Gladding is my favorite book. But I want to tell you, my, my favorite book is The Outsiders by Essie Hinton. Have you, Amelia, you have read this, right? Okay, glad you nodded because I was literally going to ask you if you'd read it because it was written in 1967 and you were a bit late to the game if you hadn't. Uh, this movie, for those of you who did not know, Outsiders, written in 1967, becomes a 1983 movie starring everybody in the world who had then become famous. It would cost more than a Marvel movie to make this, this movie now. It's Tom Cruise and uh, Rob Lowe and Matt Dillon and Patrick Swayze and Melanie Griffith and Ralph Macchio, uh, C. Thomas Howell, like all the 80s people make this movie of my favorite book. It's my favorite book. It's the story of uh, kind of two groups of people, the greasers and the socias. These, this uh, group of working class folks who have, have struggled, whose families have generational poverty, who have uh, kind of just everything uh, hard. People look down on them and uh, see them as less than. And, and the socias, these are the, the, uh, the middle class and upper class people who wear the madras shirts and have the convertible cars and go to the good schools and uh, are supposed to be the good ones. But Hinton uh, weaves the story of uh, what does it mean to be good? And what's it mean to be an insider or an outsider? What does it mean to be um, the hero of the story? And we, we find ourselves weave, weaving through the story of the greasers primarily and how they respond to these others who think they are more than. The, the constant tension of uh, fear, the risk of life. Uh, and it's a story that has uh, fights and uh, stabbings and deaths and tragic hospital stories. And, and it tries to pull together this idea that, that people are people. That whether you are a greaser born in this part of town or a soch uh, from this part of town, uh, you're all uh, potentially good people. The story goes on and on, and we keep getting glimpses that, that maybe we can reconcile these two groups. And, and uh, Cherry Valentine, uh, played by Diane Lane, right? Somebody Lane. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, she's not, she was not super famous then, but super famous now. She's like the good social. She was giving us hope that these two rival uh, social classes can come together for good. And she's, she's, she's tiptoeing on good the whole time. And at the end of the story, when, when things have really kind of fallen apart, we've had some deaths, we've had some court trials, we've had uh, tragedy and tears, uh, she doesn't acknowledge the presence of this greaser at school. It's a story that wants us to ask, what does it mean to be a person? What's it mean to be uh, in the establishment or in the fringes? What does it mean to be human in the midst of a world that tries to put us in categories based on these things? I love this book. And I've thought about it a ton this week. I was talking to, to Tom Eblen about the, the, the parable today, the, the story of the prodigal son. And uh, it's fun because uh, it's just a great story. Like you could have this in the Old Testament and you've got the gospel uh, but you've heard it preached a few times, right, about the son who goes and squanders an inheritance and then comes back. The Outsiders has made me think about it differently. Uh, at, the, at the very beginning of this chapter, before we're even daring started, it tells us that Jesus was talking to the tax collectors and the sinners, while over here, the Pharisees and the legal experts were going, look at him. He's talking to them? 
to the tax collectors and sinners. And clearly we're setting up this picture of of the religious elite, the lay leaders of uh, Israel, disgusted that this teacher is talking to them over there. And Jesus begins to tell these parables, and Darren went ahead and read the whole chapter for you. It was lengthy, but it got us, it got us heading towards where we need to head. There's these uh, kind of increasing parables. We start with the parable of the lost sheep. If a shepherd has 100 sheep and one of them wanders off, uh, of course the shepherd would go leave the 99 in the safety of the pasture and go find the one, right? This is okay. I mean, when you farm, you know you actually might lose some animals. When we did hog farming, uh, you know there was a, a certain amount of pigs that were just going to die before they made it. But uh, in Jesus' story, you know, you go after everyone. And so uh, this 1% that is lost over here, we're going to go after. And then uh, a short little parable about the lost coin. Uh, there's a woman who has 10 coins but loses one of them. Wouldn't she tear apart the house to find that one coin? And don't y'all, don't y'all resonate with that story more than the sheep one? I haven't lost many sheep, but I've lost some coins around the house. And I know what it's like to tear it up to look for that thing. So 10% of her wealth, she is uh, desperate to find and would do anything to get. And then we have the parable of the prodigal son. The story of, uh, of, in theory, a father with two sons. What, a rich, what riches in Israel's story to have two sons. Two, two people who would carry on your name, who would uh, take the, the family name and expand it. You would have... Uh, hope that your name would carry on. This father has servants and has stuff. We can picture the bait of the father's house of Israel and, and their life together. He's wealthy enough to have uh, enough property and things that it can actually be divided up. And, and the story quickly gets to the younger son saying, can I just, can I have my part now? Can I have my inheritance and go away? And this is really, really, really offensive, even to our minds today, right? It's, it's, it's a little weird to be like, hey, Dad, can I go ahead and have part of the inheritance? And, and in this day, it's even more shocking because uh, much of the assets would have been tied up in the family compound. Once you started having kids, you just bought a little more land around you, and you uh, kind of built houses on the thing. It's much like actually living in Powell County where they'd have 100 acres, and you build a house over here for this kid, and you build a house over here for this kid. And so to give this kid an inheritance, there's some liquidating of assets that has to to happen. There's some kind of restructuring of the family. And the father says, sure, I'll give you your inheritance. You go. If this is is what you need, you go. And he goes and he blows it. And I mean, it's like, talk about the 80s Brat Pack and all these kids who starred in the the movie The Outsiders. Uh, He blew it just like they did. He went and partied hard. And then famine came. He has no money. Literally, he can't. He is eating worse than the pigs who are eating the scraps on the ground. I would love to live like these pigs. My father's servants surely are eating better than this. Let me go back. We see the story shift kind of the perspective of the father. And the father is just outside doing something. And he sees the sun coming in the distance. And immediately begins to start the party, right? He calls for the servants to get things ready. He begins rejoicing. There's a a coat that is beautiful that is brought out, which of course calls us back to Joseph, right? This uh, beautiful coat for this beautiful son. And as soon as the son comes, the father is rejoicing. I love that all the son had to do was just come back. The son didn't have to write an IOU for making the estate whole. The son didn't have to like 
uh, come in and promise 10 years of service to make up for it. All the son had to do is come back. And the father throws a party. And, and we like this part of the story. But then we start to feel kind of bad for the older brother, don't we? This older brother who is, uh, by birthright, the one who should inherit the most, the one who should be the most close to the father, the one who, uh, who really has a say of what the family is going to be next. His feelings are really hurt, and I understand it. Can't you imagine this? Uh, your younger sibling takes all, all the stuff, disappears, and then comes back, and they get a party. And the, and the older son says it. This is not fair. You, you won't even give me like a nasty little goat for a party, and you're going you're gonna to slaughter the fattened calf for him? For your son? And that's the language the, the brother uses, for your son. But then the father says, but don't you see, you've been here the whole time. You have access to everything. You are older, the older brother, and he is your brother. None of this, my son, your son, he is your brother. And let's rejoice. And wouldn't it be great if the, the story ended with the older son being like, yes, I get it. I'm so excited my, my younger brother's back. He's just angry, though. And he's frustrated. Remember, the sinners and tax collectors are sitting at Jesus' feet hearing this, but the Pharisees and the legal experts are standing over here hearing this. The, the lay leaders of Israel, the ones who are trying to bring back vitality to being God's people, the ones who are trying, trying to experience God's covenant promises are seeing Jesus bless the tax collectors and sinners. For 400 years since we came back from Persia, we've been the faithful ones We've been the ones doing the law. We've been the ones doing the sacrifices. We've been the ones trying to make sure. And you're, you're having parties for the tax collectors and sinners? It is so absurd they can't believe that he is the Messiah of Israel's hope. You know, in the end of The Outsiders, what I really wanted to happen is for uh, Cherry, Cherry Valentine, the Soch, to end up with pony boy the greaser and us to live at the end and say uh, they got they got together and she she wrapped this up in a nice bow and people are people and it can all work together uh, but the story doesn't end there but what i love about the jesus story is if we fast forward to to the holy week experience you look to who is there after jesus is crucified to who is there when he is dead on a cross and the disciples have actually kind of uh, stepped off scene and it's the women and Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I love this because the women are like, uh, in this society, they are the lesser of the disciples. They are, this is a patriarchal society where women are, uh, are less than. I, you know, I am, that is not my belief now, but that is uh, the, the problem of our story. It's something we have to deal with, right? Um, you have the women and you have Joseph of Arimathea. Does anybody remember what Joseph of Arimathea is? What, what category of people he fits into? Bingo. So we have a Pharisee and the women there to take care of the dead Messiah. Where outsider says that these categories are, uh, are not able to be transcended, our story says these categories are absolutely to be transcended because our God goes after the one and goes after the 10% and goes after the half of the family. Our God is big enough to transcend categories and his love is enough to rejoice over everyone. His story starts with a focus on Israel, but through Pentecost and the gift of the Spirit, the church bursts beyond the walls of the known empire, inviting all sorts of people who would not be dignified 
in their eyes to become part of God's very people. To experience the love of Christ and to understand his grace and to enter into relationship with this God whose love is expansive enough to, to care for the older son and love the older son while still rejoicing in the one who is found. I wish outsiders had ended this way, but I'm glad that our story ends this way. This church made up of people who uh, hit lots of different categories, who come from different walks of life in different places. This church that is uh, at times messy and full of contradictions, but is united in the love of Christ, who comes together in these uh, baptismal vows to be a community of love and forgiveness. This church that says like, hey, even if we're totally different, we're going to join you in raising that child. Our God is big enough. His love is expansive enough. He desires your heart and your heart and your heart and and the hearts of so many. And much like the younger son, all we have to do is turn and look towards him. We don't have to go and make it up. We don't have to go and pay it back. Jesus has, Jesus has burned the debt obligation, and we simply have to turn and look. Amen?